Well, welcome. This morning is going to be a little different than what we might be used to. It's the first Sunday of the month, and so um, we wanted to talk about what our theme is going to be for this upcoming year. Uh, if you remember last year, our theme was testimony, and uh, we kind of talked throughout the year about how we share uh, what God has done in our lives and through us, and we looked at the testimony of several um, believers through Sunday school, um, kind of throughout church history. Um, so our theme for this year is sanctuary. And first, I want to talk about what we mean by sanctuary, because our theme for the year isn't let's finish the sanctuary. Um, <laughs> although I, I do think that's in the goal for this year at a minimum. Um, so I think when, when I first hear the word sanctuary, kind of what comes flooding back to my memory is being a child and my parents saying, no running in the sanctuary or there's no drinks in the sanctuary. The sanctuary was this special part of the church where we couldn't have um, fun, it seemed like. Um, but it was reserved. It was sacred. Um, and when you hear the word sanctuary, you might think of something different. It has a lot of different meaning. It can conjure up different imagery. Um, so some of you might, like me, think about the room in a church where um, a service is held Others of you might think of like an animal sanctuary where animals go to be protected or um, there's been a lot of talk this past year about sanctuary cities where illegal immigrants can go and the city will protect them from the enforcement of the federal laws against immigration. Uh, so there's been talk about sanctuary cities. Um, if, you, if you followed it all this past year, uh, Salina attempted to pass an ordinance that would make it a sanctuary city for the unborn, that would, they would have protection and safety there. So there's a lot of different ways that the word sanctuary can be used. Um, so when we use the word sanctuary and we talk about it for a theme this year, um, this is the definition we're going to work with. And um, it is that a sanctuary is a place of refuge or safety. And we're going to narrow down um, this into three specific uh, realms where sanctuary functions for us as believers and as Crosspoint Church. And in our sermon today, I'm going to cover the first one, which is sanctuary in Christ. Um, and then Nathan's going to come up and talk about sanctuary in the church. And Tim is going to come up and talk about sanctuary in the home. So these are all different realms where we can find refuge or safety or where we provide refuge and safety for others. And this theme might feel kind of timely after the past two years that we've had as a culture. Um, I think two years ago, if you think back, um, we've endured quite a lot together as a society. Um, we've been through a pandemic. There's been great social and political unrest. And the world seems significantly less safe, at least to me, than it did two years ago. And so we want to take kind of this next year and think through what does it mean that we have a refuge like we sang about this morning we have security and safety in Christ and what does it look like for the church to be a place of refuge and safety for others and also what does it look like for our home to be a place of refuge and safety maybe not just for us as we live there in our families um, but also for others who we may be called to provide refuge for so we're going to primarily focus on this uh, theme through our Sunday school class, and it will kind of interwork itself throughout sermons in different areas. So uh, next, starting next week, right? Yeah, the testimonies, yes. <laughs> so next week we're going to kind of combine the last year's theme and this year's theme, and we're going to have testimonies of those 
who have either provided sanctuary um, or have provided the opposite of sanctuary. For the first time, we're going to look at a bad testimony. <laughs> um, so that will be an interesting one, um, uh, an example of what not to follow or what not to do. Um, so that will be in January. We'll kind of take a couple different people throughout church history and look at the ways that they provided different types of sanctuary and safety or didn't do that. And then February, March, and April, we're going to take a month and look at sanctuary in Christ, sanctuary in the church, and sanctuary at home. Um, so uh, what we want to do today um, is just kind of take a real quick overview look of everything. So we're not going to get real in-depth, and I've probably already used up about half of my time. Um, if we have three people preaching, we don't want to be, you know, half-hour sermon each. Uh, keep you guys here too long. Um, so what I'd like to do with the rest of the time that I'm talking is look at Numbers 35 and see where this idea of a place of safety or refuge kind of originates in Scripture outside of the garden. And then after we look at that, we're going to jump to the New Testament and look specifically at safety and security refuge that we have um, in Christ and under God. So Numbers 35, 9 through 15. And as you're turning there, let me set up the context of this passage. We're in the Old Testament, and God is giving the law to Moses, and he's instructing them on how they're supposed to establish their society once they enter the promised land. And one of the things that he's going to tell them to put into place are cities of refuge or sanctuary cities. And he gives some specific instructions. So we will start in verse, um, verse 9 and read the first couple verses here. So Numbers 35, verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be refuge for all the people of Israel and for the stranger and the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So these cities are set up with a very specific um, situation in mind that if you happen to be working up on a ledge and you drop something over the edge and it strikes someone in the head and they die, well, their brother might want to avenge their death, and so you need a place to go for safety. And these cities would be set up so that if somebody accidentally killed someone, they could go there and they would have safety until they could face a fair trial. And there's a couple of interesting things I want to look at um, in, the in the verses that we read and in the rest of this chapter. Um, the first thing is that there's an authority which provides refuge and justice. In order for there to be some place of safety or refuge, there has to be some sort of authority or leadership that establishes the bounds of that safety and provides the protection therein. So in this case, it's the congregation. God establishes the city and tells them to set them up, but it's the congregation, the people of the city, that are responsible for executing justice. So they're to protect the individual who is seeking refuge, and they're to give them a fair trial. In the next like nine verses, um, God lays out specifically different circumstances and how they should judge this individual, whether it was in 
uh, an intentional murder or whether it was an accident. And so when we talk about sanctuary, a sanctuary is only as effective as the authority of the sanctuary. This is good news for us when we say that we have sanctuary in Christ. He is perfect. So when we can have um, sanctuary and refuge in him, we can have perfect sanctuary and refuge. One of the difficult things, and we'll see this as we talk about um, sanctuary within church and with family, is that those are all have human authorities in place. And sometimes those authorities follow God, and it is a great place of refuge and safety, and sometimes they run far away from God, and it can actually become a place that's more like a snare and dangerous. And so as we talk about refuge, we're going to keep coming back to this idea of authority quite a bit um, because there's a a strong impact on the way that we provide sanctuary through um, the way that we establish um, these human institutions. And these are perfect, or not perfect, but they're effective so long as the authority is under the authority of Christ. Um, The second thing, and we saw this in verse 15, is that sanctuary is offered both to the citizens of Israel, the, the members of the house, and to the sojourners. And as we look to offer refuge, we're not trying to create a bubble where it's just a safe place for those of us who call Cross Point home and everyone else is just out there. We want to be a safe place for those within and for those outside who are looking for a place to come. And same in, in, in the home. So it's not something that's exclusive, but it is something where you have to come under the authority to experience the refuge. Um, farther down in this Numbers passage in verse 26, um, it says that if the manslayer at any time shall go beyond the bounds of the cities of refuge where he fled, and the avenger finds him outside the boundaries of the refuge and kills him, then he won't be guilty of the blood. So this is an interesting point where in order to have refuge, the individual had to stay under the authority and couldn't leave. And it's helpful to me to kind of think of a sanctuary like an umbrella. Like, if you have an umbrella, you're out in the rain. So long as you stay under that umbrella, you're safe from the rain. As soon as you step outside of the umbrella, you're exposed to the elements of the rain. And we'll see how this works itself out in each of these different realms. But I want to go to 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10. Um, at this point, and look specifically at sanctuary in Christ. And all of these things are just kind of some concepts that we'll cover more deeply, especially in Sunday school, um, as we look um, in depth at these different realms and how sanctuary functions and what are some of the the opponents or the enemies that try to break um, that sanctuary and safety and how we can um, protect ourselves and others. Um, So we're in 1 Peter 5, and I want to read verses 6 through 10. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So again, I want to point out a few things from this passage, and then I'll hand it off to Nathan. The first thing, the first word that we see is a word that kind of, at least for me, grains against me, humble. Humble yourselves. 
That's not what we want to hear. We want to hear, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You can do it. You've, you've got what it takes. And the first thing that we're called to do is humble ourselves. Part of taking sanctuary in Christ is recognizing that we can't solve our problems on our own and that we need him. That we need to submit ourselves under his authority and recognize um, that we need him for our security and our safety. And as long as we try to maintain our, our autonomy, doing everything on our own, in our own power, we'll never really have refuge in him. Because we're continually fighting against his refuge as we try to do things our way in our own power. So right there, we see that we're called to humble ourselves, put ourselves under that umbrella. And here it's called the hand of God. Put ourselves under the hand of God. The next passage, it says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And as we're under the hand of God, it should be like this relief that comes off of us. Like we don't have to carry the weight anymore. And that's what it feels like when you get to a place of safety. Like if you've ever driven through really bad weather, icy roads, and you get home and you're just like, oh, safe. Like I don't have, it's that this like load that's taken off your shoulders that you're there, you, you can relax and rest. And that's what we have in Christ, that we can cast our anxieties on him. And it says we can do that because he cares for us. So it's not like we can go to Christ and say, here's my anxieties. I'm really worried about this. And his response is going to be like, that's silly. Why are you worried about that? You're such a bad Christian. You don't have enough faith. No, he cares for you. If you think about what it would look like to have somebody genuinely care for you when you're casting all of your heavy concerns that weigh you down and even the little trivial things that you can't seem to get off your mind. His response is not, this is dumb. You shouldn't be dealing with this. His response is, I care for you. Let me take this burden from you. You can find refuge and safety in me. In verse 8, we see that part of the reason why we need to take refuge in Christ is because there is an enemy. He is prowling like a roaring lion. And when we humble ourselves under the hand of God, we place ourselves um, under his protection. But when we step outside, we expose ourselves, we become vulnerable to the enemy and his attacks. We don't have the spiritual protection that we have when we're following Christ. And when we allow our hearts to chase after our own pride or after our own things, we allow the enemy a foothold where he can continue to to try to break us down and to devour us until we can't stand anymore. And finally, at the end, in verse 10 of our passage, we see that God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. These words are repeating the same idea. And in the Bible, whenever words or concepts are repeated over and over again, they're for emphasis. That God will fortify us and strengthen us. We come to him because we are weak, because we need him, and he strengthens and establishes us. We can only find firm footing and solid ground in Christ. Um, So it's truly a blessing as believers that we have this type of refuge that we can find in Christ. I'm really looking forward as we kind of explore this more. I feel like we just like, you know, kind of like skipped across the surface of the pond. And hopefully in February, we can dive in deep and look at some practical ways that this works itself out. And how does this um, kind of intersect with faith and spiritual warfare? And what does it mean for us to humble ourselves practically? It's kind of this abstract concept. Well, how do we actually do that? And how do we actually take refuge in Christ? Um, I'm going to turn things over to Nathan now. He's going to talk about sanctuary in the church.
Thank you, David. So, as David said, I'll be covering the topic of sanctuary within the church. And uh, like he said earlier, it's not referring to just this physical building. While I do find it to be a great analogy for at least my walk in Christ, um, that it's constantly under construction. It's constantly seeking improvement. And sometimes it looks a little uglier some weeks as layers are peeled back and improvement is slowly being made. But when I... When I think of the concept of sanctuary, and we're talking about a place of refuge, a, a place of safety, um, it's also a place of peace, because if you are safe, if you feel comfortable, you're going to be at peace. You're going to be um, not constantly worried about what's coming next. And when you are at peace, when you're at rest, you then can grow in your relationship with God and you can focus on your relationship, and so you can have a place of worship. And so that's some of the ideas, too, that I'm going to try to quickly unpack today as it relates to the church. Um, due to lack of time, I won't be looking at kind of what it is not or the abuse thereof, of, but this is something that we will get to kind of pit, dive into a little bit deeper as we go throughout this year. So I'm going to be looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, please turn to Colossians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is writing to. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to go 12 through 17. So Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So Paul here returns to a clothing metaphor uh, in verse 12, a metaphor that he was using earlier in the chapter uh, here he uses the metaphor he, as he lists various qualities for an individual believer to hold, uh, qualities that closely reflect the character of Christ himself, compassion, kindness, humility, which David talked about earlier, meekness, and patience. In verse 13, then, he, he calls for the community of believers, the church, uh, to demonstrate grace toward each other, just as the Lord has demonstrated grace towards you. And if we do these things, um, well, then he, above all these things, he says that we are to put on to love because it binds us all together. In verse 15, we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. So if the church is successful in Paul's uh, call here, the church will be a place of safety and a place of refuge, a place of peace in the terms of sanctuary. If I, as a believer, know that you as a church are going to bear with me, as Paul puts it, through the good, the bad, the happy, the sad times of life, and when I stumble, not if, but when I stumble, 
you will forgive me of my shortcomings. You will bring me back into this place of refuge. Then I do have sanctuary within the church. Moving on to verse 16, we see the idea of a sanctuary as a place of worship and a place where one can grow within the relationship with God. So the church is to dwell on the word. This is not simply reading the word together and gaining head knowledge, but studying the word and allowing the Holy Spirit to work within us to move our hearts closer to God. The church is to teach the word and to admonish one another or to warn. As David said earlier, the sanctuary is only as good as the authority under which it is under. And so it is the calling of the elders to teach and admonish you during the Sunday morning service to read together the word. We are to study it together and to dwell on it. To admonish is to caution or to warn. For me, what first comes to mind when I read, when I think of that, I think of the fire and brimstone uh, preachers. Repent and turn to Christ or now or risk spending all eternity into hell. I don't think this is what Paul is after here when he says this, but I do believe as a church, the Bible makes it clear that we are to warn one another when we see follow, fellow believers falling into sin. Bring them back into that sanctuary. Bring them back into that point of refuge. And given that all scripture is God-breathed and useful to, for teaching, rebuking, and correcting, and training in righteousness, we ought not to play the Velcro Bible where we pull out parts of scripture that we don't like and ignore it because it doesn't fit with the way we have chosen to live our life. Going back to verse 16, Paul also calls us as a church to sing together. If we have a place of refuge, we have a place of safety, we will be joyful and have a joyful heart. We're not to stand and listen to the worship team sing, but all the church singing together praises to God for what he has done. I always love Psalms 100 for this. Psalms 100 reads, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. Do you hear that in verse 1? That's the part I love. Stated a joyful noise. It didn't say that it has to sound perfect or even halfway good. It just said it has to be joyful. Hallelujah for me, because that's about all I'm capable of. And that's okay. I'm just fine with that. It is a joyful noise. Finally, in studying the scripture, I think Paul points out another uh, concept for the idea of sanctuary as a place of peace and refuge. That if we have peace, if we have refuge, that we will be joyful, that we will be thankful for it, and we will be grateful. We see in verse 15, the body is to be thankful. In verse 16, our worship is to be done with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in verse 17, that we as believers are to be giving thanks to God the Father for what he has done. So I know that's a very high level, trying to keep it short and to the point. There's a lot to cover. Um, looking forward to this year as we dive into this deeper, into this idea of sanctuary within the church. I'm going to turn it over now to Tim as he looks to sanctuary in the home. It's Nathan. A place of refuge and safety. Simple yet important definition David gave us. And I appreciate that he said that not only are we after getting sanctuary, but we're going to give it. That once 
the atmosphere is correct in our homes and our church and our lives, and that is welcoming for other people. I mean, ultimately, that's the goal. We have refuge in Christ, and we want people to find refuge in Christ, but that often means within the confines of our church and home, too. So that's the atmosphere we want. And in the home, particularly, is really going to give us lots of opportunity to talk about healthy homes because we're talking about a lot of different areas, uh, safety, emotional and physical, for husbands, wives, children, our parents, if your parents live with you or whomever, love, discipline, having honesty in your home and not falsehood, forgiveness, acceptance, training for living, lots of really good opportunity there that are important parts of creating a sanctuary in our home. And you know, it's, it's really important <clears throat> that this be accomplished by you as you seek to follow Christ in your homes. I've seen in my life what appears sometimes to be nice, well-balanced, healthy families and come to find out years later from the children it really wasn't so. Find out dad was a screamer or mom was a belligerent of some sort that made life miserable for the children later and lots of people were fooled. So we understand that can be the case. So we're not trying to paint a picture of sanctuary, we're trying to live it out so that it is a true thing. Another thing about sanctuary in the home um, is that not only are we this, we are not this. We are not a home of abuse. We are not a home of alcoholism or dominance or poverty and laziness, gluttony. And that within our homes, within our church, that sometimes having sanctuary and safety means removing danger, being proactive. It's not all love and lollipops and niceness sometimes. And we'll talk about some of that too within the confines of the church. Sometimes active love means forcibly removing danger and problems from your church. For example, if we have a problem in this church of any kind of abuse of children, we're going to actively remove you or them and the problem aggressively. If you are a spouse abuser and we know about it, we are going to actively deal with it because we want safety and sanctuary in these realms. And unfortunately, that's a real part of life. Even Jesus had to cleanse the temple to show that things have an order. There's authority in the home. There's authority in the church. And um, that we will we must follow that. And so that's, that's the two sides of sanctuary, both the safety and the removal of danger. So I want to quickly read a couple of passages, and <clears throat> what I'm after here is not setting out any theological arguments, just the tone of what God is saying to us uh, as far as the care of children, wives, and husbands. And if you're a single parent, the, the commands and the demands and the ideals are still upon you too, like the rest of us. And the idea is even for the church to come alongside you as a single parent to help you achieve these goals. In Deuteronomy 6, a very famous passage, if you're a parent, I'm certain you've read this, I'm certain you've heard it. But the tone is important, not so much the details. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live, 
by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you so that you may enjoy life, long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. So here we see a picture of deep involvement with parents and their children passing the faith along to them, the ideals of uh, living, of loving them, teaching them in God's ways that we're bound to do. Therefore, we will create the kind of home that we're after, and then hopefully that will be modeled for them. In Ephesians 5, we see Paul giving instructions for husbands and wives. In verse 21, he, start, 21, he starts out by saying, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And an interesting part that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point is what David referenced is there's authority in the different realms and that we know that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church with submission and uh, proper order. And this is how in all these three realms we create a sense of sanctuary and safety and appropriateness. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And it goes on to talk more about what this looks like. So there can't be any higher of an ideal of submitting to one another in Christ and husbands loving wives just as Christ loved the church. That will go a long way to creating the type of uh, atmosphere we want in our homes and I, I, think, I think I've said this before. Sometimes when we've dealt with a marital situation and a husband is complaining about his wife in certain things, which may or may not be legitimate complaints, we'll often say, well, the first question we have for you is, are you loving your wife as Christ loved the church? Let's talk about you first and not her first because we want to kind of hold to this ideal um, that we're after both sides of this equation, not just one side. And finally, uh, in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, starting in verse 9, we see this picture of the intimacy in homes that we want between husband and wife. And this is really important because spouses need a sanctuary in the home that is welcoming, that is loving, that is intimate, and is refreshing in life because of all that we face in the outside world. So in, in verse 9, he is speaking, and he says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariot horses. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make your earrings of gold studded with silver. Then she says, while the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. And I like this last part here where she kind of paints two pictures of the closeness of their relationship in that she is near him. 
like this sachet of myrrh. He is near her, against her. She's comforting him. She's loving him. They have an intimate relationship. And the other picture here is mentioning the vineyards of En Gedi. <clears throat> and En Gedi is actually a place that is west of the Dead Sea in Israel. And if you know anything about the Dead Sea, it's a place where water goes in, but it never comes out. It all evaporates. And that's why it's called the Dead Sea. Well, Eve and I have both actually been in the Dead Sea. And you actually float and bob around because the salt content is so high. And it's hot, and there's nothing around the Dead Sea that's alive or green for, for quite a distance. Well, En Gedi is actually a place that's elevated uh, several hundred feet above sea level there, the Dead Sea, and water pours out of some limestone rocks, and it flows down, and it flows into the Dead Sea. But along the way, there's an oasis created there that's really lush and green and surprising. In the midst of this stark area, all around the Dead Sea, there's this oasis where you can find water and refreshing. And this passage shows us that the relationship between the husband and wife should be like that. It should be refreshing and fresh and alive and a place of refuge for us to go. Because the world around us is often a desolate place where Things are pouring in, but nothing ever leaves, and it's stagnant, and it's not life-giving. Our home should be life-giving. So in closing, I want to say that our goal, again, to reinforce what we're talking about in the home is we're after safety, emotional and physical safety for our children and our spouses, or anyone who lives with us, our guests, love, discipline, honesty and not falsehood, forgiveness, acceptance, and training for living. So I'm really excited about the possibilities this gives us to talk about many kinds of things that are practical, that we need to uh, review in light of our cultural uh, decline in many basic areas of family life, of church life, and I think we'll all uh, gain a lot from it and try to become the kind of church where people feel welcome and safe and taken care of.